0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to Cover Story by New Books Network, a podcast where we talk with people who write, edit or publish long-form journalism. My name is Aga Popenda and I'm your host. And today we're talking with someone who wears at least two of those three hats. uh, Chris Lehman, the editor of The Buffler a former managing editor of The New Republic and a former editor of In These Times, among many other things. Welcome and thank you so much for your time.
1: Uh, thank you, Aga. And uh, again, I'm going to uh, briefly edit um, your introduction, which is to say I'm, I am no longer editor of, uh, of The Baffler. I'm editor at large there, um, which is also the title I, I um, have retained at The New Republic.
0: Um, i see okay i thought that this time i got it right (laughs) no no problem (laughs) uh thank you uh so you were recently described by the new republic owner as someone who uh was able to restore stability after a decade of incessant turmoil and today we will be talking to you about the art of being a good editor but also about your own writing uh chris is an author of long-form journalism himself and also uh the author of two books about money rich people things and the money cult about the influence of christianity on american capitalism am i leaving anything out that you feel is important and you would like to add
1: oh just um i i do have an earlier uh book it's a miniature book more like a pamphlet called uh revolt of the mass cults um and you know i um uh, do contribute uh sort of longer essays and criticism to uh, a wide range of of outlets and i guess i should say i'm um continuing um at the new republic in a sort of contracts capacity as a bi-weekly um or fortnightly to edit myself um book reviewer there so
0: Sounds great. Um, okay, so uh, let's start on this intersection of editing and writing. Um, the first thing that uh, came to my mind when I was thinking about this conversation with you is that uh, your writing is very funny, you're a very funny writer, and I was wondering if uh, if this is something that you can also utilize as an editor, or is it just a loss? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, well, thank you, first of all. Um, you know it's it's often part of the human condition some you know um to think of oneself as funny when one actually isn't so it is (laughs) good to to get feedback on that front um and yeah i absolutely um as an editor um try to inject humor i think it's you know a great um leveling force in um you know literary discourse um I think journalism should always aim to be uh, democratic in the small d sense of uh, speaking to an audience of equals. And I think humor is often indispensable in establishing um, a democratic tone for how you um, engage readers. So, yeah, I uh, um, am always, you know, at certain publications more than others, The Baffler was very self-consciously founded in part to revive a, a long dormant tradition of um humorous writing on the left and you know even took influences from people who weren't entirely on the left, such as H. L. Mencken. So um and I do think, you know, it's integral to, you know, the the best qualities of journalism as I think of them are um kind of integral to um you know, um, the best kinds of humor. It's, you know, it's a uh, tradition of discourse that should be suspicious of of authority that should take down pomposity that should call out, uh, untruths when they're being, um, loudly proclaimed. And I think those are all traits that, you know, sort of court jester types have, uh, played throughout Western history. So I, I do think there's a lot, um, sort of, or organically shared between the vocations of humor and journalism.
0: All right. And um, what makes a writer a good editor? Is it rare uh, combination to be able to do both of these things well?
1: Um, I'm not really sure um, how rare it, it may or may not be. And I don't mean to ever presume that I am doing both things well. Uh, but I do think... You know, there are some baseline um, traits that writers and editors uh, typically share. I think, you know, you have to be somewhat um, engaged and driven by the idea of reaching a general reader, um, of having your ideas, you know, sort of um, claim a, a certain in the in the you know always mythical marketplace of ideas. Um, yeah. and I think to be both an effective um, writer and editor, you have to be a, a voracious reader. I think you need to read both to you know sort of develop models in your mind for the the kind of writing and presentation of ideas that you know are most compelling to you. And, um, you know, speaking more narrowly from the editing perspective, I think you need to keep uh, reading a lot in order to know the kinds of writers um, who can best execute an idea for a story that you have in mind. Uh Um, And uh, obviously the only way to, as a writer, um, I say this often to my Stepdaughter, who is uh, foolishly considering a, a career in journalism herself, <laughs> um, that uh, you know the only way you learn to write is by reading, um, yeah, and noticing you know the the sorts of you know shifts in tone and voice that are you know very effective in telling a story, or the the kinds of mood you can evoke with a certain you know, um, form of expression versus something that might be more stilted and and aloof. So, yeah, I I absolutely think that both um, the professions of writing and editing are are firmly rooted in in reading.
0: So when did you know that you will be a writer?
1: Um, Never, really. (laughs) (gasps) My uh, career, uh, such as it is, was almost entirely accidental. Um, Way back when I graduated from college with a degree in religious studies, which is to say I was, for all intents and purposes, unemployable. And I worked a long series of um, retail jobs and mainly in bookstores because I am a reader. (laughs) And uh, I eventually got to the point where I kept thinking to myself, like, I'm putting things in bags for a living. This even though that, you know, they are books, which I do love, it's somehow not adding up in my mind to an, a real adult, you know, calling. So mm-hmm. I just randomly, I was living in San Francisco at the time, and a friend of mine was um, attending this law school downtown called Golden Gate University, which had a a um, an internship clearinghouse. So I, you know, just sort of went down there with a notebook and started writing down names and numbers of places that might be interesting to explore. And one of them was called the Foundation for National Progress, um, which I knew nothing about. It was described very generically as some sort of research job. It seemed, you know, like it could be of interest. So I called up and they answered the phone, Mother Jones, which is a, you know, Mm -hmm. still, you know, very, well-known and successful magazine on the left, and as it happens, my parents were sort of charter subscribers. I, I was a big fan of the magazine at the time, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even know that it was based in San Francisco." Um, that's how sort of far, far out of the loop I was. <laughs> but uh, happily, you know, I uh, interviewed and got a, a gig as a um and a fact-checking intern. Um, and I think. Hmm. Um, many years later, I'm, I'm still doing the same kind of
0: work. So would you say, I'm thinking about this fact-checking, that's closer to editing than writing, I guess. Um, did it help you with becoming a good editor?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I worked closely with editors of long pieces as a fact-checker, and uh, one one really sort of invaluable thing. Um, I mean, this was in the long ago times before um, there was really email or or an internet or anything like that. And um, in order to do fact checking, you would get a list of sources that a reporter had spoken with and called them up on the phone, (laughs) um, which I think was an invaluable sort of training, both in you're basically retracing all the the steps that the reporter took and putting the story together, and you are also, you know, re-interviewing um, their interview subjects, and you're acting as a journalist. You're asking probing questions. A lot of these people didn't want to talk to our reporter in the first place, and were even less sanguine about talking to some entirely different person bothering them on the phone from Mother Jones. So. I think it gave me a, a very good sort of full immersion um, education in what it is to report out a, a major story, and and also like, as you know, you assemble the factual record behind a piece, you know, what's involved in shaping it, and and you know, what sorts of claims can and can't be supported, and how that affects the larger structure and architecture of of the story. So yeah, I I think it was a great introduction um, to the work of editing and also the reporting part of of being a writer in in journalism.
0: So in that case, if you, let's say, brought uh, an original or better reporting while checking the sources, uh, would your name be then included as a writer? And that's how people become writers from fact checkers?
1: Uh, no. You you, no. In, you envision an egalitarian paradise <laughs> that exists nowhere. <laughs> but uh, you do, um, you know, and this is the whole kind of idea behind um, an internship in the first place is you get to know the work well. And later, you know, it's sort of, again, I was utterly clueless and uh, had no background in, in doing journalism. So like my last week on the the internship, you know, the ed- person who edited the the sort of short piece section at the front of the book of the magazine invited me to write something. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. I'm, <laughs> I hadn't really thought of that. Um, so yeah, it was it was sort of an informal perk. Of, you know, at that point, happily, it is no longer the case, but um, my um, internship then was unpaid. So the only way you got anything out of it was to get a byline, Um, so.
0: Hmm. Okay, Uh, I would like to uh, talk to you about heavy editing. Uh, And I have a dramatic story to support it with. Uh, In journalism school, I sold a long-form piece to a magazine uh, that loved it so much, the voice of it, the empathy of it, that they not only bought it from me, but they hired me for six months. Uh And. Now, the editor didn't leave a single sentence from my story. The reporting material was pretty much extracted and the whole story was written by him sentence by sentence from a different angle in a different voice. What do you feel when a young, frustra- frustrated uh, writer tells you a story like this? And please be honest with me.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, well, there are a number of, of things, uh, I would say. Is, um First of all, I think anyone who is edited, um, particularly, you know, for a longer magazine piece the first time, feels that, that way, that their voice has been somehow taken for granted or discarded, you know, by this arrogant, um, you know, know-it-all figure. <laughs> um, and believe me, I have, I'm, have written a lot in the past, and I have been edited by people who are undeniably bad editors who don't re- have... Much regard for the the sort of original conception or voice of a piece. So,
0: can we talk a bit a bit about that? About bad editors? Of course, we're not talking about any names. We're just talking about what makes. <laughs>
1: I, I didn't realize you're on a vendetta here, Aga. But no, sure. no, no, absolutely not. I'm just curious.
0: What, for example, makes a person who's a decent journalist, whatever, writer, reporter? An awful editor. <laughs> well,
1: you know, again, these aren't, aren't really questions I can answer with any sort of definitive assurance. <laughs> what I would say is um, you know, what I think you were chafing at in your own experience and what is a common um I would say failing of um let's just say heavy-handed and clumsy editing is um, kind of not editing within the voice of a writer um, of sort of just treating a writer as though they're, you know, sort of a factotum who's, you know, going to go out into the wilderness of the world and bring back, you know, morsels of information that, you know, you the editor are going to shape into some, some other, um, you know, form of expression. Um, And, I have been, you know, in one of my more miserable jobs, um, I worked in a magazine where at editorial meetings, editors would commonly discuss how they could quote writer proof a, a story idea they had, which is just a, um, to, you know, sort of refine the the basic, you know, narrative to such a point that a writer can screw it up. Um, and. <laughs> You know, I think, um, I mean, there are many things about that model of journalism um, that I hate, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's arrogance um, and it's um, counter to, you know, the best things about journalism have to do with collaboration, uh, right. Where you're not, you know, you don't, you neither take, you know, a first draft that a reporter submits to you if you're an editor as wholly rich that you don't alter in any way, um, nor do you just sort of, you know, um, gleefully level it and start over. Um, you sort of say to the writer, look, you know, here's a place where I think, you know, you need to do more explaining of, you know, the the basic course of the narrative here. Here's a place where, you know, there needs to be a different sort of transition. So you're um, taking into account, you know, um, some course of events that you weren't aware of or or some sort of objection to an argument you're making that you hadn't addressed. Um, And that's why, you know, I think the the role of the editor is to be a a reader advocate, to sort of uh, look at a piece of writing and identify, you know, the the kind of... um, places um, where something has gone unnoticed or an argument isn't fully developed um, or a uh, you know a, a kind of structural problem needs to be addressed um, and then go in and address it. I think it's also the case that for all the kind of you know clumsiness of an ultra interventionist editor, you also have the kind of editing, um, where um an editor will send a piece back with very broad, ill-specified,, um, you know, things like, this needs to be clearer or I'm not following this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And expect the, the writer to just keep, um, working on, you know, in comparative isolation, until somehow they are able to hit the magical platonic ideal that this, this person has in mind for the piece. I liken that kind of editing to like, if you're at a restaurant and you just are continually sending the meal back to the kitchen without any sort of explanation of like, well, there's a hair in the soup or, you know, <laughs> um, you know I the hate the tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, the, The the ways you can edit badly are vast. (laughs) And I think what I try to keep in mind, and I think this is why it helps both to write and edit, um, is that it is, you know, it, it is innately a collaborative process. And that means, yeah, you have to be respectful of the writer's voice, but you also have to point out to the writer where their voice is, you know, full of shit. Or, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure I can say that here, but... Definitely,
0: <laughs> um, this is you podcast. Have to, you have
1: to, you know... The, the point of having a voice is to communicate with it. And if you're not communicating with it, you know, it, it's not nice to hear always from an editor, but the editor is a person, you know, your last line of defense before a piece is unleashed on the world, um, who's going to say, like... And I can't tell you the number of times in my career where I've pointed out to a writer, you know, if you don't address, you know, this kind of objection to the argument you're making, you're gonna face a big backlash from constituency X. And sure sure enough, <laughs> um, in many cases, when the writer tells me to go away and soak my head. The piece will get published and constituency acts will rise up in righteous indignation and you know and you know i i tried to warn them that's all all i could say that
0: sounds (laughs) great thank you um Okay. Can we talk about your influences? And here we can shift a bit from editing, if necessary. Even though I would be interested, uh, who you consider your masters, masters in editing craft, editors that impress you, but also, you know, reporters that you admire, and maybe even the writers that you love. Whoever um, you admire.
1: Sure. Um... I would say, you know, actually to start off with someone who is not strictly speaking a journalist, I studied under Christopher Lash at the University of Rochester um, in the history department there. And he was very much, you know, one of our, I think, last, sadly, last models of a public intellectual, someone who wrote, um, you know, deeply considered works of history, but aimed at a very um, general readership Um and I think, you know, his example has always loomed large in my own it's, you know, not not within the strict purview of journalism, but um, you know, I I think about his work and his influence every day. Um, sort of more narrowly within journalism. Um gosh, you know, there are, there are so many writers. Um I'm you know the great Murray Kempton who I had the privilege of briefly editing when I was at Newsday. Um, Jonathan Schell was another, um, person who I was very privileged at Newsday to work with. Um, Susan Faludi is a fantastic thinker and writer who I worked with at the baffler and, um, you know, Heather Haverleski, um, God, you know, there are just so many people in both again, both in and out of journalism. Um, I was just reading the memoir of Tom Gagan, who's a fantastic labor lawyer who's written for me um at the Baffler in the New Republic. Um, he's sort of a, a model writer and a model citizen, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um I had also had the great honor of writing for Peter Kaplan when he was editor of the New York Observer before Jared Kushner got his despicable (laughs) hands on it. (laughs) Um, And uh, that was a great, Peter was a fantastic editor and and someone I learned a great deal about um, the craft of journalism from. Um, I could go on and on, but yeah.
0: Thank you. Um, (laughs) um, So Both of your books are about money and obviously inequality is a big subject these days, but you kind of started to write about money early on. And I was wondering uh, if um, the discourse and the way we talk or allowed to talk about money changed in any way within like this decade when we had Thomas Piketty Capital and all that stuff. Is there Mm -hmm. more honesty within journalism or even society when it comes to talking about money? Um,
1: I would like to think there's sort of less uncritical deference to the the power of money in journalism. I'm not sure that's true, especially because as you are well aware, journalism is in an acute um, state of crisis that is not getting better and um, hedge fund billionaires are taking over. You know, former local newspaper chains, um, um, you know, TV networks like Sinclair are kind of wiping out the uh, the market for independent local news um, and filling it with right-wing agitprop um, to say nothing, of course, of Fox News, One America News, Facebook, all of these sort of um, arteries of what is basically monetized disinformation. Um, So, yeah, I can't in honesty say that um, the journalistic discourse around money has substantively improved. I think, you know, journalists are forced to take perhaps um, um, you know, more serious notice of Mm -hmm things like the bernie sanders movement or elizabeth warren's um presidential campaign the student debt cancellation um movement um occupy wall street but even i mean if you look at most mainstream um news sources handling that kind of material it's overwhelmingly like oh you know these people aren't real grown up you know they're not serious um And that's a, you know, it's an interesting historic problem within the journalism profession because, um, you know, going back, you know, to the early 20th century, journalism was largely a working class profession. You would not find many college graduates uh, practicing journalism Um, and uh, you wouldn't find, you know... um, Characters like Tom Friedman, who is married an heiress and lives in a mansion in suburban Maryland, opining about what, you know, shape the, the global economy should take. Um, so it's, you know, what's happened within the profession of journalism has, a, in my view, a lot to do with um, how issues of inequality get covered With within. And, you know, to take a very simple example, like, you know, Again, in up through the mid twentieth century, virtually every major metropolitan daily in the United States had a labor reporter. Um, now you can count the number of labor reporters in you know print journalism on one hand, um, and I think that tells you a lot about you know where the priorities of the industry are, who who the economic actors they think of you know um, as the the serious you know, agenda setting figures that they have to cover. And it's not the labor movement. Um.
0: So uh, then a horrible question to ask. What is the future of journalism according to you? Or maybe (laughs) uh, (laughs) where... If it was, if, if you were in charge, <laughs> if you were a god of journalism, which direction uh, would you take it? And also, what do you think about this other model uh, that is alternative kind of to billionaires buying newsrooms, which is uh, a newsroom as a, a non-profit?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I would be, you know, an arrogant, out-of-touch editor indeed if I were to... <laughs> prognosticate on the the future of the industry I you know um and you know I'm someone who is recently without his job so I am not gonna give you a uh, a sunny um forecast that's for sure um yeah and I think you know um the uh alternate models I think are interesting you look at sites like the sports site defector or the uh Network of websites um, published by Brickhouse. Um, those are employee-owned websites, and uh, I think they're both doing reasonably well. Um, and I think you know they've deliberately tried to create a model where you're not, um, you know, prey to vulture capitalists who are going to come in one day and you know lay everyone off and and pronounce some new inevitably unworkable um you know like pivot to video bullshit <laughs> so yeah um i think you know to the extent that journalists are able to form their own kind of freestanding um you know independent institutions that operate a, a sort of an on an old guild model um that I think, you know, if you're concerned about the quality of journalism, which I think is really the, the most dispositive question, right, um, you need institutions that are um, going to be invulnerable to um, predatory takeovers that are going to report honestly about the actual condition of working in America. Um, and you're, again, you're not going to get that from Sinclair or Fox News or One America News. So, um yeah, it's a it's a big big problem, and I think it ultimately will have to rest on the ability of um, people in the industry to think differently, to create different models of ownership and um, shared enterprise, and uh, and you know the most valuable quality in any kind of journalism, in my view, is fearlessness. You can't be afraid of powerful people are going to be upset by what you write. You can't be afraid of, you know, market forces that are going to, you know, demand that you, you know, do reality TV recaps. You know, that that is meretricious work. You should, you, If you care about the craft of journalism, you need to aim higher than that. I don't know how you get to that, the place um, where you, you're not drowned in trivia and listicles, but you know, goddamn it! If you don't get there, it's none of it is worth it.
0: <laughs> yeah. What is the best newsroom you ever worked at?
1: Uh, uh, well, it's been a while since I've worked in a newsroom. To be yeah. Honest, not only because Where you had COVID, most but, fun. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I I did have a really good time when I back in the '90s when I was at in *The These Times*. That was a truly collaborative. Um, Workplace, a very you know non-hierarchical um, place where um, people would you know um, encourage you to take chances. I think that's again fearlessness and not being risk-averse are you know sort of perhaps the same thing. I don't know, but uh, the only good you do in terms of you know journalistic work is trying to. Um, both encourage people to think differently and and modeling the process of thinking differently and, and reporting out, you know, something that's, you know, everyone thinks they, you know, have the conventional wisdom nail on and, and saying, Hey, wait a minute. No, (laughs) what you're actually thinking is wrong. And, and here's what's really happening. Um, So any, you know, the newsrooms where I've been happiest have been newsrooms that aren't afraid to meet challenges like that. And they're, you know, again, because of the broader condition of the industry, there there just aren't many of them.
0: Um, you talked about, uh, you know, journalism uh, ideally being a working class profession or a profession that serves working class, that serves mm-hmm. the people. And I was wondering, so how do you react uh, in these times mm-hmm. when we have uh, when we have working class Trump supporters being very uh, well treating media as an enemy. Uh, yeah. When you are being confronted with that attitude, uh, how do you resolve it, kind of for yourself?
1: Um, well, you know, again, I have to issue. That speaking of um, common tropes being mistaken, you know, the white working class. Um, contingent of Trump support has been vastly exaggerated as an empirical matter. You know, uh, Trump can, can drew in both elections drew his heaviest support from uh, upper middle class to upper class um, college educated whites. So, um, you know, I get a little tired. It's one of those things like the abuse of the word populism that you just see every place (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I could devote all my waking hours to stamping it out and trying to correct it. But, uh, um, but you know, I, I, look, I live in Washington DC. I, um, know a lot of people who are part of an actual knowledge elite and, you know, the counties around Washington are the wealthiest in the country and, you know, the lobbying industry kicks up tremendous, um, you know, revenue in the DC suburbs and, you know, the people who, you know, I mean, the thing is, you always have to be careful in you know, defining the the sort of people you're talking about. Like, you know, I know lots of great journalists, even in news organizations, I don't necessarily respect who are doing, you know, really important hard work and, and reporting, um, out the truth, even if it gets drowned out by, you know, pundit blathering of one kind or another. Um so, you know, I mean there look, there's a long history. It didn't begin with Donald Trump. It begins it's sort of with Spiro Agnew, which is something I've written about at the Baffler. Um, you know, seizing on this this sort of model of the out of touch East Coast knowledge elite. Um Agnew was talking mainly about the TV industry, but over time, because, you know, other demagogues on the right have found it really beneficial to target journalists in this way. You know, it's spread to the idea of a, you know, the New York times and the Washington post being these organs of, you know, intolerant, liberal, um, agit prop to, you know, name your website or, um, you know, blog or ideological organ here um i think you know the the whole drive to sort of demonize the journalism profession as an elite you know um badge of class belonging um misses the main um class component which is you know what we've been talking about that you know um the way, you know, a certain news anchor comports himself or herself on screen or, the you know, whatever turns up in the op-ed pages of the New York Times um, is far less consequential than who owns the New York Times, than, than hmm. who owns the Washington Post, uh, who happens to be the richest person on earth. You know, um, it's, it's frustrating that, you know we never really talk about that, right? We never talk about Jeff Bezos, you know, um, being able to, you know, you know, earning $150,000 a second. <laughs> yeah. um, and instead we have to scurry around and talk about, oh, you know, what was, you know, what was the latest thing that I didn't, you know, Karen Tumulty did to outrage the Trump nation. I mean, honestly, you know, um, who cares? (laughs) It's not, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of ranting, but the whole right-wing critique of the media as out of touch with the common folk hinges on a conception of the press as somehow like equivalent to a representative body of, of lawmakers or something, right? That they have Hmm. to you know, embody the taste preferences and the political rooting interests of, you know, the American public. And actually, journalism at its best, largely consists of telling people things they do not want to hear. (laughs) Um, You know, no one wanted to hear, you know, about the Pentagon Papers in 1969 or about Watergate. I mean, you go back and you look at the opinion polls right up until Nixon's resignation. The American public was four square behind the the president. Um, No one wanted to hear about Iran-Contra or the SNL bailouts in the 80s. No one wanted to hear about, you know... um, inequality in the 1990s or you know the the real causes of the 2008 meltdown until it happened <laughs> and that is the the big you know um, you know to for journalism to really matter um, it can't be in the business of appeasing the the sort of you know declared interests of whatever subset you know it applies as much to you know the the kind of you um, bellyaching left-wing, um, critics in this vein who I tend to share politics with, but, you know, you know, I've often said, you know, when I've been running, um, left-leaning, um, news organizations, like we're not in the cheerleading business, <laughs> you know, it, it's important for us to be left critical, which is to say critical of the status quo from the left, but also critical of the left, um, that is just how journalism has to work, always. Um, so it, you know, it tends to make me nervous anytime any political constituency feels, you know, that um, the press needs to fall in line with them. It's The answer to that should always be no.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Um, uh... About your book, uh, the money cult, um, mm. it talks about how comfortable American Protestantism is, pretty much with greed. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about it, especially from a perspective of uh, now five, six years when you, okay. you know, <laughs> when you, uh, I'm sure, spoke with a lot of people about it and thought about it.
1: Um, sure. I mean, you know, the funny thing about Um, that book is, it came out almost, um, well, I think it was right. The pub date was the summer before Trump's election. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I would be lying if I said I, you know, expected something like the tight evangelical embrace of Donald Trump to happen based on the research on my book. It's, um. You know, it still kind of dumbfounds me the extent to which um, American Protestants have entirely thrown over um, the most basic uh, kind of scriptural understanding of, of how Christianity works and what the message of Jesus is. That you know, um, they are, you know, by overwhelmingly numbers, overwhelming numbers, um, dedicated to defending um, this person who is a despicable, um, fraud, um, who has, you know, sexually assaulted two dozen women, um, that, I mean, reported, I actually know at least one person who was sexually assaulted by Trump who has not come forward. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm just a random person. (laughs) Um, and You know, someone who fomented this obscene um, insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, based entirely about around lies of you know the election being stolen from him. Um, If ever there were a false prophet, it is Donald Trump. Uh, And here we see, um, if anything, American evangelicals are cleaving to him more firmly in in the wake of the events of January sixth. and, you know, it is that paradox is the paradox in many ways of modern American religious history, how you've gone from, you know, or going all the way back to the colonial settlements. There was a very explicit um, sort of social gospel embedded um, in in the original, you know, Puritan settlement in Massachusetts. It was obviously only combined to property owning white male members of of the church but it was a real thing um and it um you know sort of grew out of you know the the preachings of jesus are you know speaking you know pretty broadly socialist they yeah. <laughs> you know I the have... first yeah, <laughs> members of the early church held property in common um he's he did undeniably say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, that question that sort of drove me in writing that book was like, well, how did we get from there to here? How do we get from John Winthrop and, you know, um, um, Roger Williams to Joel Osteen and Kreflov Dollar? And, you know, to me, it's a really fascinating question that has a lot to do with the, the kind of de-institutional character of American Christianity. Um, I sort of say in the book that religion was the first uh, deregulated industry in American history when the established church was effectively broken up in, in the last state it existed in in Massachusetts in 1820. Um, and what you had after that was sort of a, you know, market-driven free-for-all where, you know, new techniques of uh, evangelizing of revivalism of um, you know constructing religious sentiment around the values of the market became the standard lingua franca of of American uh, Protestant belief. Um,
0: right, you know, but I, I find it fascinating because Reformation uh, was a movement that was fought as a, a response to a greed of a Catholic Church, right in Europe. So. Right it's a big paradox that pretty much they ended up uh, in the same uh, situation that they thought was unacceptable.
1: Well, this is Max Weber territory. Exactly, yes, Um, yes, yes. A different conception of the self emerges under Puritan Protestantism um, and the idea of intense anxiety around your prospects for salvation in what's a very, very narrow and perilous vision of the afterlife. Um, so all that energy gets transferred into the idea of a calling. Um, and so then you have, you know, these sort of neurotic Puritans who are, um, you know, devoting themselves to their callings, trying not to think about the likelihood that they'll be damned. And they start creating vast, you know, sort of storehouses of wealth and that um, has by definition, has it has come out of their virtuous, you know, sort of God ordained um, mm-hmm.
0: profession. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
1: Um, so the wealth itself has to be sanctified in in ways that make sense in this, you know, admittedly, you know, sort of distorted mirror version of of Christianity, and that, in large part, is the the saga of you know modern American religion. <laughs>
0: Definitely. And uh, I was wondering, um, I what are you working on these days? Are you thinking about future books? And also, do you think that other books will also be about money or maybe you're going a different direction entirely?
1: Yeah, I um, I don't want to jinx it, but I, I am working on a book proposal. Um, and that is actually not about money. Um, it's more about the role of emotion in American politics and um, how it's never how different kind of emotions are sanctioned and others are um, stigmatized. And there's very often a racial component to that process. And, you know, how, you know, just as the money cult, you know, was trying to answer the question of how did we get to this point of, you know, vast uncritical worship of wealth in, you know, houses of Christian worship. Um, I think the Big question that this other book would try to answer would be, how did, you know, this self-declared, you know, Democratic Republic end up with the January 6th insurrection? Um, So, yeah, it's still a work in progress. So I obviously don't have an answer and, you know, don't really know quite what the definitive shape of it would take. But that is something I'm thinking a lot about these days.
0: Chris, thank you so much. And uh, we were talking uh, to Chris Lehman today. Uh, Thank you so much.
1: No problem. Thank you, Agatha.